welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we're talking about Moonlight with the tremendous Ryan Ken. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall. Moonlight, if you don't know, is a 2016 American coming-of-age drama film. It is written and directed by Barry Jenkins. It's based on Terrell Alvin McCraney's unpublished semi-autobiographical play In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. Ryan Ken is a friend of the show. We love Ryan so much. Ryan has been on talking about Arrival. It is a fan favorite. People love this episode. If I have to send a link to an episode to be like, this is what this show is all about. We share the Arrival episode. And I have a feeling I will be sharing this episode as well. This one, we go deep in this episode. Ryan is an American writer, actor, and comedian. They are best known for their sketch comedy videos posted on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Ryan's work has been recognized by Vulture, The Hollywood Reporter, NPR, and The Los Angeles Times. They are a staff writer for Last Week Tonight. Uh, and you know what? Have an Emmy. Have a fucking Emmy. Since Ryan was last on the show talking about a rival, they won an Emmy for the writing on last week tonight. Love, Ryan. So happy we're doing this. You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Apple Podcast Subscriptions and on Patreon. You make this whole thing possible. You help these artists, these writers, these musicians. Um, you help us uh, be able to make a living doing stuff we enjoy doing in a world that doesn't support all those things <laughs> as much. <laughs> as much as we would like. So thank you so much for doing that by supporting us on Apple podcast subscriptions or Patreon. You get bonus episodes this month. I know I already said that we were going to do this Christian version of Saw and we, we very well may at some point, but we pivoted. I'm so sorry. Our January bonus episode is going to be about the menu and it's going to be about Megan or Mathrigan as Sarah calls it. Uh, we're talking about both those movies. That episode is coming out in January. If that's a conversation you want to hear, you can support the show. And as a result, you can get bonus episodes. We appreciate y'all. Thank you so much for helping make this whole thing happen. How are you doing out there? How's your life? How's your world? How's January going? How'd you like the Newsies episode? We've heard from many of you who uh, have liked it quite a bit, and I am happy about that. If you'd like to hear me elsewhere outside of this context, I was on Jeremy Craner and Cecil Baldwin's great horror podcast, Random Number Generator Horror Podcast Number 9. We talked about Army of Darkness. We had a grand time. We talked for nearly two hours about this movie. I had a blast. I love this show. If you like horror, check that show out. I love it. Sarah has been on the show. She was on there a couple years back talking about the movie Ticks. Random Number Generator Horror Podcast Number 9. Don't forget, you, my friend, are good. Let us go bask in the moonlight and the glory of Ryan Ken's presence. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Have you ever seen Moonlight before, Sarah? 
No, I never have. I, before watching this for this episode, knew it, as I'm sure many people do, is the movie that won the Oscar in the weirdest way possible for Best Picture. Oh my God, I forgot about that entirely. And I just I just remembered now, thanks to you, I was telling our wonderful guest before uh, we started recording that I was so enthusiastically talking about this movie to someone who I had a meeting with today. And I got five minutes into just like this long, sprawling, loving exchange, or I would say monologue about the movie before he said, so is this, this is the TV show with Bruce Willis? Like when, <laughs> when does all of this happen? And I understand now describing the plot, how radical that must have sounded compared to what this person was thinking. He was thinking of Moonlighting, much different movie, much different media. Yeah. Although wouldn't it be incredible if Moonlighting was this <laughs> and it was a weekly show? And it was on for years, and everybody watched it. <laughs> Absolutely. This is a movie that gets requested quite often, and thankfully, someone brought it to us. So, who, lovely guest, are you? And tell us about why you brought us Moonlight. Hello, I'm Ryan Kinn. I'm back. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> Um, here to talk about even more feelings about movies. Um, <laughs> but Moonlight is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. It sits kind of like in my spirit in a way that like a lot of other media hasn't. It opened my eyes to what I could expect from film. And I remember the first time I saw it, I actually saw it in a theater in Evanston. And it was like... A bunch of like older white folks and like me and my friends. And I remember turning around behind me several times being like, do you all know what you're seeing right now? Do you all <laughs> get what you're getting? But there's so much about it that I revisit. It's actually a movie I love so much that one of my friends got me the script uh. years ago. But it's sitting in an interesting place in my life now as I reflect on my own healing and journey and think about the ways that I perform myself. So I'm ready to dig into some feelings. I already had a good cry today. I'm ready and primed to go. Oh my God. <laughs> You're like, I've cried. I, my pores are open. The time is now. The time is now. Sarah, could you tell us, just walk us through the plot of Moonlight? Yeah. I mean, I find this movie surprisingly difficult to summarize. I think because most of the movies we talk about and really, this is kind of arguably the definition of what a movie is and why you would make something a movie and not a book or whatever, is that the feeling of watching it is so different from hearing the events described mm. to you. Mm -hmm. But basically, it's three moments in the life of Chiro and our main character, who we see first as a child and then as a teenager and then as an adult growing up in Miami and... In our first sequence, he's running from kids who are chasing him and hides in a boarded up building and meets Juan, who becomes his adult friend and protector and who brings him out into the ocean and holds him in the ocean. And I mean, we see that there's, if not a total lack of safety at this point, then a continual erosion of safety in his relationship with his mom. Mm -hmm. And so he's moving in bits and pieces away from her and toward Juan, who's also called Blue at times, and his friend Teresa, who becomes kind of a surrogate mother figure. And we learn that he's like beginning to like hear and experience 
anti-gay slurs already and he's kind of coming into that world and that consciousness it seems like like it seems like this is a period of realization and i i mean like what age does this seem like do they ever say it like it feels like he's about 10 maybe yeah i think when at the earliest stage of the movie he's around nine yeah Mm. and then we see him again at 16 and then i think we see him Mm. again like later in life maybe 30s yeah. Yeah. And that, it feels like that that thing when you're nine where you're like still very much a little kid, but like your brain is like thinking very fast and really starting to notice adult things in some ways. And if not notice the meaning of what they're doing, at least like notice what they're doing. Mm. And so then we move ahead in time. I'm just going to give a very loose summary to him as a teenager. And we learn in kind of an offhand way that Juan is dead. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I having that information existing so casually in this world, I think affected me a lot. I mean, like this this movie does what I think of as like a very European thing where it's like I feel like American movies traditionally are all about like you can't just show the audience something. You have to show it and say it as you show it and then say it a second time and possibly a third through a sixth time because you can't trust them. Mm-hmm. Really, so much of this is just kind of watching people who don't seem to realize they're in a movie. And so in this teenage section, we again watch the relationship just kind of continuing to fall apart between him and his mother, who knows that he doesn't love her anymore, or at least feels that to be true. And he has his first sexual experience on a beach with a boy his age who beats him up horribly the very next day because his friend tells him to. And Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, presumably the same beach where he learned to swim. I I think so. But his friend Kevin, yeah, is the one he like has feelings for and then ultimately gets in a fight with. Mm. And it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, that feeling also that's so horrible of like, of course, of course, no good thing could exist for more than 12 hours. That would be against, I don't know, this, this yeah, the, it gives me this feeling of like, yeah, the world is just horrible like that sometimes. You just like are offered something and then it gets taken away and it's worse than never having it. Mm-hmm. And so he comes back, Chiron comes back to school and after kind of denying the police's attempt to use them to protect himself, he comes in and beats the shit out of the kid who asked for him to be beaten the day before. And then we see him getting arrested. And then we're in adulthood and he's living in Atlanta and he has his own whole life and he just looks very different. He's adult, he's like filled out physically. And he like, as a child and teenager, I feel like we've seen performances where someone is like, really hanging back and watching and there's this intense sense of vulnerability that just feels like so physically there and that feels like much less visible by the time he's an adult partly because adults don't broadcast physically how vulnerable they are as much even as it's still happening and this section is him talking to his mom at the I assume rehab center Mm -hmm. where she lives and is just kind of still in the rehab world in exchange for working there. And then getting a call out of the blue from his friend who beat him up. 
who wants to reconnect for some reason and coming back to Miami and the diner where he works, or the restaurant where he works and being like, what's going on? Why is this happening? Why did you call me? Especially as you're like all married and stuff and are being a family man at this very moment and talking about it to me. And then the end of this movie, which is when it feels to me like everything that we can see is like finally said by the person we've been watching this whole time is he says, you're the only man who's ever touched me. And they just have this moment of like, could go with sex, could not. It's just a moment of physical tenderness. And then we just see him as a little boy on the beach in the moonlight. The end. Everybody cries. Finishing it, I felt like I had watched something that allowed itself to be in a way so small, right? Because it's about just this handful of people, often in the same locations, kind of like getting through life in the often like very muted emotions that are what we are able to show based on what's going on inside. But that like at the end of it, you feel like something giant has just happened inside of you. Hmm. And it feels like so giant for being so small. Ryan, can you take us to your time in the theater, seeing that with your friends, looking back and wondering if the people behind you understood what they were seeing? I think especially sometimes as like a black queer person, you don't realize that you've never seen certain aspects of life depicted that way until you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The movie is, was deeply emotional for me the first time from the opening scene. Mm-hmm. I really resonated with the experience of having a lot of early childhood bullying and a lot of it that was physically violent. And some of those scenes like brought back like a rush of things that I have often in my life tried to suppress. And so I was like, oh, we're in for it now. We are <laughs> we're we're going to do this. We're going to walk all through my mm-hmm. my story and what I Speaking to that that idea, like when you're from what we call minority groups, there can be this pressure in representation or in stories about us to only tell the most positive versions. Mm-hmm. And so there's an inclination to not want to tell the stereotype is what people say. And we have seen Black folks in media represented as drug dealers, as people dealing with substance abuse. We've seen it so much that there is a tendency to say, well, we don't need to see any more of that. Mm. We've, we've already seen it. But what we haven't seen so often in those narratives is people who are represented in a fully human way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in our desire to tell the most desirable stories or the most respectable stories, we say that some people don't have stories worth telling. Mm -hmm. And what I found so beautiful about this movie is that it captures a lot of what I have known to be true is that a a lot of people who are in difficult circumstances, a lot of people who make choices we don't understand, a lot of people who are involved with the criminal justice system are complex, wonderful, caring human beings. Mm -hmm. The scene where Chiron comes home to Teresa and Juan and asks what the F slur means. Mm -hmm. The gentleness that Juan responds with like brings me to the loving compassion, the lack of Mm -hmm. the support that they get. And to see someone associated with like the drug, like I I know that that kind of complexity exists in human beings. Mm -hmm. And so 
you, you describe something that is my favorite attribute of this movie and all media that I consume, which is the people don't know they're in a movie. The people don't know they're in a play. Mm-hmm. It's based off of the play by Terrell McCraney in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. Mm. And it feels very much like people who don't know they're being observed. And I find that to be like the most transporting quality of art and media and a thing that I seek hmm. to do myself. And it it's a movie that like made me want to be an artist at a time where I, I wasn't embracing that about mm. myself yet. This is a movie that's like big feelings <laughs> over here about it. I even I love that scene uh, the scene at the table for uh, for a hundred different reasons but like one of my favorites that speaks to they don't know they're they're in a movie is when he's about to like go further in his description about like the complexities of like the use of of the Efsler in this particular case and Teresa just like silently like shakes her head to be like don't go any further you've done <laughs> enough like it's so great where like that's not like a throwaway thing that happened but it also mm-hmm. doesn't feel like that itself was like meant to be monumental it just feels so natural to the scene that you really do feel like yeah. you know this I mean this feels like a movie it's like one of the most beautifully shot films I've ever seen mm-hmm. but you also feel like it just happens to be beautifully shot people who have no idea that they're being they're being yeah. seen in these tender moments in their life and and that scene he's loved and seen so well mm-hmm. and in such desperate need of that mm-hmm. a lot of what I took away in reflecting on it this time I have been reflecting about my own neurodivergence, Mm. learning a little bit about ADHD and learning now more about autism and finding parallels and similarities. And I'm at that phase where I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm ready to publicly say I'm autistic, but I do have a 70 page of (laughs) document with tabs (laughs) that are all organized and color coded and a series of TikToks that seem to reflect my personal experience. But, you know, once I accumulate more research, I'll let you know, (laughs) I'm sort of I'm sort of at that phase. (laughs) But a lot of what the movie invited me to reflect on was about masking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I resonated so much with Chiron and a lot of the a lot of the socialization he's getting toward masking is toward masculinity. Mm -hmm. Masculinity was just never a performance I could do. So I felt like I needed to cultivate talents about Mm -hmm. myself. I needed to make sure I was impressive. I needed to make sure that I was also creating this sense of distance and doing something to sort of earn my value. And Mm -hmm. my brother's story, who I also don't talk about publicly, he's incarcerated. That's the thing our family's been dealing with. There's a lot of the ways that he did embrace those messages of masculinity. Mm -hmm. And we have a complicated relationship. And I think one of the reasons why this movie moves me so much is I see both of us in Chiron Mm -hmm. so clearly. I see us presented with similar challenges and different manifestations of how we responded to it. And the great journey of my life has been about learning to unmask. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) the question that keeps getting asked about like, who are you, Chiron? That is a question that I have to continually ask myself because I put all these things in the way that I sometimes don't even, I haven't always felt like I knew. Mm. This is going to sound like a really ridiculous comparison because it is, I know that, but that reminds me of the, 
I really identify with the whole thing in Runaway Bride where she doesn't know how she likes her eggs. Actually, she just likes them however the guy she's with currently likes them. Oh, uh, yeah. And there's an argument, I think, with Richard Geary where he's like, you don't really want to climb Annapurna. And she's like, I do. I do want to climb Annapurna. I find it very scary to get to the point where you're like, what do I like? And you're like, well, no one's reinforcing me positively to like something. So, like, mm -hmm. what is the not dangerous thing to like? I don't know. Yeah. Right. I think that that's actually a tremendous. I like I would expect no better a comparison on the show that we have. Uh, it's a bimbo comparison. I love it. Yeah. And I love it. It's important. Your bimbo representation happens here. The, um, <laughs> to the point, I'm curious, Ryan, about if it's largely about math, if you are seeing it in your journey where you're at now as sort of like what it's speaking to with masking. Like, what do you make of the fact that early in the film, Chiron is encouraged while young, he's being picked on regularly. He's encouraged by a friend to, you know, push back essentially to just show that he can be tough, like that that's important as a means of like his survival. And eventually it's like essentially that it's that advice plus pent up rage that leads him to go and sort of pay back this person who's overseen his beating that leads to his incarceration, that leads to his introduction to this, to the um, essentially like lifestyle and job he's going to take up for his time up and through through the third act. Like, what do you make of like what masking encourages us to do and be outside of like who we might actually be underneath it? I think the decisions around it and what Kevin offers him makes sense giving his environment. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the sad things about the way that people can experience marginalization is like we live in a culture that says violence isn't the answer while it does incredible violence to sustain itself. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we are left passing on violence to each other as a safety mechanism and I really, I think one of the reasons why I resonated so much with Chiron, especially in those early, some of those early phases is I related to the experience of like just your very being, being an invitation for mockery or violence, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that you're not sure why people are responding to you this way. You're not, you just know that you're being, you know, that you're just going through your life and something about you inspires this and it creates this fractured relationship with your body, with yourself, with your autonomy. And there was a part of me that almost wished I had had a friend like Kevin to tell me, okay, here's the thing that people said you're doing wrong. Here, like, Cause I just felt, I felt this sort of sense of feeling lost. Mm. And a lot of what I did because the the performance of like tough masculinity was not something I was ever going to do. I spent a lot of my life watching and studying and being hyper analytical of every interaction. I think that's one of the reasons why acting came mm. to me in the way that it did was because I had often felt like I was doing a character study in mm. order to just be. Mm -hmm. And some of what happens with Chiron that I feel with is that when you spend a lot of your life creating and cultivating defense mechanisms, eventually it gets to a point where you're not sure where the defense mechanism starts and you begin. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I feel about that movie is the reconciliation of that, of like how the Chiron we see 
later in life is this big, tough dude. Very mm-hmm. hot, by the way. Uh, I will say the audience gasped the first time he appeared huh. on the scene. <laughs> I, I, I say that respectfully. I now work in the entertainment industry, so respectfully <laughs> hot. He was oh, yeah. professionally yeah. respectfully. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> This isn't wanton objectification. This is professional. (laughs) Wanton, Alex. (laughs) But not wanton. Yeah, they're pronounced differently to avoid confusion. Every episode we learn a new word that I do not know about. (laughs) I don't know. I love the idea that someone would objectify a wanton. I mean, I have. Anyway. I I will say, I think one of the most moving scenes to me is the later portion of the film where when Sharon actually says to Kevin, you're the only man who's ever touched me, that there is this sort of acknowledgement of like, I, I have already seen you and you have already seen me. Hmm. And that task of masking and of pretend like I love you too much to have to pretend to be anything else Mm -hmm. that even for all of the things that I have built about myself, you see me and you know me in such a way that I just like can't be guarded around you. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really beautiful that he still holds on to that. And I wonder if he still holds on to that because Juan held on to that. Right. <sighs> because Juan held on to the part of him that was soft and a boy and fragile and vulnerable so much that he could see it in Chiron and offered to him the thing that he needed. Right. Well, it's so interesting too, that like in this third act, we see him as one, right? Like we see him, he's Mm -hmm. like kind of almost fully occupied the aesthetic and physicality of what one was. And one was also like one loved him. And so he's emulating what he's kind of seen through this person who was like monumental in his life, who was there when people weren't there, who, you know, beautifully explained to him sort of like what people are saying when they say particular words, like we see him emulate that as a means of like where he received that love. And then we see him return to Kevin, which is this whole other source of love. And it's this really interesting, not by no means is it a switch, like by no means is it like, you're right. You've shown me the error of my ways. This is not who I am. Let's be together. Like, it's not like that. It's we see him occupy these two places where he got two very different kinds of love in the third act. And I don't know how people reacted when you were in the theater, when he finally says you're the only man who's ever touched me. But like, I, it felt like an explosion while being so quiet Mm. and Mm -hmm. so not obvious of a thing to do based on like how movies that are like quote like awards movies would go about this but was still the exact right decision to make in the scene and it was so beautiful to see that happen Mm -hmm. it also i think further resonates with the reflection i've been having around neurodivergence and Mm -hmm. autism and my relationship to it which is this feeling i've had my entire life of feeling as though my honesty was a liability. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know any, but I didn't know necessarily anything else. And having the experience of being perceived as like direct or honest or sometimes overly so, 
to a way that like sucks the air out of the room. I very much resonate with the fact that like, okay, we've had dinner, we've been to the diner, we've done all this small talk for several hours now. I was like fixing myself in the mirror. I tried to be like, we've done all of this stuff. Can we just say now while we're here? We both know we're here. We're doing this social dance around why it is. But like, I loved you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I loved you. And we put all these barriers and things up in the way that make it so difficult that, like, w- one of the things this movie makes me confront that I've been talking about is, like, so much of our society has made us feel, especially as I reflect on, like, neurodivergence, that the most embarrassing, cringy, awful thing you could do is be seen caring about something, trying or being honest about how you feel, Mm -hmm. that those are the most embarrassing things you could possibly do. And oh, my God, I can't believe you did that. And so much like freedom and healing has come from that, that I don't know that the warm embrace that they had at the end would have been possible without somebody just being like, I'm just going to say it. Right. Yeah. I'm just going to say I'm going to avoid the social dance and I'm just going to say it. It's it almost feels like it's him reciprocating making the big move however many years later because they're here at all because he accepted the move of shifting this into a sexual moment and now it's being he's the one who gets to shift it into being an emotionally sincere moment. I mean yeah, I agree. I think that there's like nothing more real or potentially more terrifying or more terrifying to others than like just quietly saying the truth of how you feel. Yeah. I'm a person who exists very kind of just open. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And some of that is my wiring and some of that is like what I have fought to be about myself. But what my anxiety tells me because of all the years I spent living like little And Chiron in the earlier parts of his life, I spend so many moments after interactions being like, oh, was I too honest? Mm -hmm. Did I share too much? Was I too vulnerable? Was I too much? And I, I feel like the question the movie poses about who are you is just very sincere. Mm-hmm. I mean, I ended on top of everything that it brings up emotionally also with the feeling of you know, this is the reason we do have film as a medium, because cutting from these two grown men who once were boys together, reunited, and then to Chiron as a child at the ocean, like knowing what this means for him. Like, I think that you could create sort of that depth of feeling in like maybe 2000 words if you were Henry James. (laughs) If you had the advantage of, say, being Henry James. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you're out there and if you're Henry James, then that's great news if you want to recreate Moonlight. Yeah. No, true. Like, and, and also just like, I found like every, I read the the Hilton Alls review of this in the New Yorker, which is tremendous. And there are so many things that I would love to quote from that generally, but like, the primary one just being like the refrain of exasperation, not exasperation, but the refrain of being like, This movie exists. Like, I can't as a young person imagine this movie ever existing. And it exists. It's incredible. But like the the thing that really stands out is Alls points out that there's never a cliche moment for a movie that is 
a coming of age movie and coming of age as a genre is just made for cliches. Like that's just like what coming mm-hmm. of age is in cinema a lot in a movie about black coming of age in a movie about black queer coming of age. Like that, like there are all of these moments where you can imagine decisions people would have made in prior movies and alls is just like this somehow makes every decision wonderfully. Like nothing is ever a cliche. Like there is menace and questions when you're wondering like what various adults intentions are with Tyrone. Like there's like that, but like it never goes into like uh, sort of like after school special feeling um, series of ideas. It like embraces the complexity of all of these people. It loves all of these people. Chiron's mom, who is difficult to love in various scenes because we are able to see her not just like in her worst moments, we're able to see her in the, you know, in the fourth dimension, like herself multiplied by time. Mm. And we are able to see that that she you know was in an out of control moment in her life and also that out of control moment part of her life was being used to make a profit by one of our protagonists and mm-hmm. yeah. it's not like he's like um like an evil nefarious drug guy it's like he's pursuing an opportunity that exists in a place in a setting where there are not a lot a lot of opportunities that ends up killing him presumably so it's it's i think a lot about movies that like try to make a lot of these points in the place where they often go wrong, it seems, is is by way of being like, I'm going to say something rather than being like, I'm going to like bring to life these characters that have complexity, but I love these characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I have a friend who I talked to the movie about who feels as though the story doesn't service um, Chiron's mother, mm. Paula, well enough. Mm. And she said she felt like we only see her at her worst moments. I, I hear that, but I also think it does feel like a child recalling yes. their memory of mm. what childhood was. And a lot of how I feel about Chiron's mother and sort of reflecting about this for this episode is I think the experience of having a parent with hmm. Substance abuse issues is something I, like my family's familiar with and uh, and it's definitely particular. But I think a lot of things take our parents away from us mm-hmm. in these really profound ways. And I was thinking about how work mm-hmm. takes our parents away from us, sure. mm-hmm. how so often under capitalism and the ways that we have to work to survive, we're often getting our parents in an altered state. Yeah. We're getting <laughs> them. Yeah. Most tired. We're getting them after being demeaned all day. We're getting Mm -hmm. them when they're feeling the lowest. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes our experiences of our parents is that we saw them when they had the capacity to give the least. Oh, that's so well said. Yeah. At 530 or whenever I get home from work. (laughs) My God. Yeah. And so it raises all these questions about how is fair to remember them? Especially because a lot of the way we teach parenthood or a lot of the ways people experience parenthood is that we don't know our parents' stories. Mm-hmm. That you're incentivized to say, hey, don't do drugs or don't do this from, from this. But we don't talk about a time where you actually had a story about a difficult decision you had to make. I think that's what's so beautiful about telling story is this like it's not... <laughs> It's not instructive in the same way, but it is reflective. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of what this movie does. And I, part of why I love it so much, and I think why it's hard to talk about it is it's so profoundly quiet. Yeah. It follows a protagonist who really doesn't speak much. It's so internal. A lot of it is done in like glances and not in like a prestige. I'm gunning for an Oscar. They got it anyway. Right. But like, but in, but in an honest way of like how Teresa looks at Juan when she's like, no, 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 yeah. not here. It's so lived mm-hmm. and real and it feels special to, to witness. Well, and this is where I would love to ask my question of like, this did win a Best Picture Academy Award, but I would not I would not call it an awards movie. I would call it a movie that like sort of fell into an award. And I'll connect this to the fact I guess need to share this. I was watching Beyond Belief Factor Fiction recently and there was an absolutely banana story about like a guy who was supposed to bake a cake for like a mobster. But then he saw a vision of a scary man in the oven and so he didn't. And then he was saved. It saved his life somehow. I forget. And apparently it really happened. And the guy who played the baker was like fun to watch. And I was like, what else has this guy been in? Because, you know, when you're just like lying on the couch looking up what actors on Beyond Belief Factor Fiction, what else they did because you forgot to have children. Um, and And it was like other roles, one million things, awards. Academy Award for Best Screenplay. And I was like, what? Because he wrote Green Book about his dad. Oh, oh wow. And, and that's an awards movie. I don't know. The whole concept of like awards movie, Oscar movie, Oscar bait is so interesting to me. And I feel like it's something we probably have a pretty clear idea about what it is which I would love to articulate. Can I just ask for like just quick clarification? Cause I think I know what you're saying, but there is an Oscar movie, which is a movie that feels like part of its construction is the studio in collaboration with like the people making the movie are like, this surely could get an Oscar. And so like, you kind of feel that energy in the construction of the movie a little bit. And sometimes it feels rote or like over the top or whatever. And then there are movies that happened to be great mm-hmm. that for some reason were allowed to get into the contest or through maybe through a great campaign external to making the movie or whatever. And it ends up being recognized accordingly. Sometimes it seems like by accident because it doesn't seem like it follows awards rules. Yeah. Right. And also famously the construct of like, what is an awards movie about black people? Because Spike Lee lost after going head to head to driving Miss Daisy whenever that came out, because that was the year Do the Right Thing was nominated Mm -hmm. and then got fucked again the year Green Book came out. And I think was like, yeah, every time someone drives somebody, I just get screwed. Yeah. Those awards are not necessarily guarantees of the economic promise and future of art making for the artists especially mm-hmm. if those folks are from marginal identities. People can win Oscars, they can win Emmys and still struggle to find new gigs. But for me, what often is a tell about a movie that I think really is invested in awards is that it doesn't feel like Moonlight does, mm-hmm. where the characters are absolutely aware that they're being watched. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that that quality feels like an intrusion mm-hmm. And so that's often, I think, why people sometimes have an aversion to it, because everyone in this film is incredibly skilled and technical and doing really interesting 
artistic things and choices. Mm. Janelle Monet is phenomenal. Mm. Naomi Harris, like all three of the actors who play Chiron really feel like they have the same spirit of they're doing this incredible thing, but it is in service of making you feel like you, you just happen to catch these moments Mm -hmm. of this person's life. And so even if it had lost, we would still be talking about Moonlight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's about something so much more than that. And I think part of the reason why it felt special was knowing that you've never seen it and knowing a little bit about sort of the mechanism of how films and stuff are made. Mm -hmm. The film is a miracle Mm -hmm. that it exists at all. Mm -hmm. It was about so much more than being recognized with a trophy Mm -hmm. and nothing better symbolizes how much we struggle to recognize that than the the whole Oscar thing being a fiasco. (laughs) (laughs) can you for for people like me who didn't remember this until you said so can you just explain what that is yeah so at the oscars where moonlight was up for an award there was an issue where i think one of the presenters the card was printed in a confusing way Mm -hmm. where it wasn't clear who had been a best picture nominee and so they said la la land and then la la land was called up on stage and then the host (laughs) had to come back and I think Warren Beatty was the presenter yeah. and had to come back and actually say, actually, it was oh Moonlight that won. And the whole the whole audience was confused and people and people hurried to get up on stage and kind of gave a like rushed acceptance speech. And it's like a thing that we laugh about now. Mm-hmm. It's devastating. It's devastating yeah. to think about, especially when you consider what the film was. Right. Well, especially, in, and I, I'm not here to talk shit about La La Land, but especially in contrast to what La La Land mm-hmm. what it was. I'm, again, I'm not like, we're not here to, to dip to whatever, but like. God forbid we offend the La La Land stands. And my point is that there are no La La Land stands. <laughs> it's, it's just such a, it's like, just also, and then also just thinking about like, yeah, literally everything about that story is devastating to me. Yeah. And not getting the full, I know it sounds so, there's probably some people who who think that this sounds, you know, these are like problems of luxury, but they're-, they're Whatever, they've never had their Oscar win screwed up. It's fine. <laughs> it's just, it's like to not have the full moment to absorb it and to be robbed of that in contrast to like what people thought that the movie that would win best picture would be gut- it's just it's it's gutting cuz Warren Beatty didn't want to wear his bifocals or whatever <laughs> so he just took a stab at it <laughs> yeah and i mean it feels like having your wedding crashed and it sucks for the la la land people too yeah. because you like your body believes that you've won the best picture oscar and then that you know, disappears for like everyone who worked on that movie. And then to like accept your actual Oscar kind of as if you're a gate crasher. Right. Yeah. It seems like. Yeah. And like you said, I don't want to offend the Lala Lala Land people, but I especially don't (laughs) want to offend Barry Jenkins because on the off chance he's listening to this, I would like to let him know Mm -hmm. that I'm employable. You follow me on Twitter. You can follow me around Mm -hmm. with a camera and a script as well if you would like. I just want to put that out. Absolutely. Just for like, you know, just just sort of see what emerges. <laughs> it maybe this was this was like on purpose acknowledging sort of what potential shortcomings of giving sort of more dynamic to the I don't know. I I loved sort of how how the mother was played. I found that there to be some great 
sympathy, particularly because we see her journey and it starts like yeah. a lot of issues do like anxious and unpredictable. And then like through the second act, it's fully embedded. And then the third act, we're on the other side of it. But that it's not just that it's what Juan says to Chiron about like, you hate your mom, right? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, I hated my mom too. And I miss her like hell now. Mm. And he's not telling him how to feel. Mm -hmm. yeah. He's just saying like, I have felt both of these things. And like, that is the thing with people in your life who are going through complicated moments for complicated reasons is you can sometimes, if you, you're not just offering caveats to everything you're feeling, you know, hate them. Yeah. But you don't hate them necessarily. You hate where you're at with them. And then you get into a new place and you are able to see their humanity again. And we see in the third act what feels like it may be the very, 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 very beginning of that being possible. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't get a like, and then the music swelled and then mom checked out her rehab. Like, you know, I feel like sometimes people listen to this show or sometimes people listen to Sarah's show or whatever. And they're like, but you didn't say the conclusion out loud for me. Yeah, bitch, because you have to figure <laughs> it out. It's, yeah, and it totally. And, it, 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 and that's the intention around sort of some of these things that, that we do. But it's like, I think sometimes there's a frustration that it's like, you didn't say the conclusion for me. And I'm. And because if you have to figure it out. You'll remember it. If I tell you what it is, you'll forget it by lunch. Teach a man to fish, etc. <laughs> I'm curious to know how people who feel that way felt about this movie, because the movie never once. The movie, I feel, is extremely well-rounded and tees you up to make a number of conclusions, but it not once is ever like, and the moral is, like, it just doesn't, it doesn't traffic in that. <laughs> I think what it does so well is that it contains the elements of a good story in terms of pace and character and what you need to know about the characters, but it makes them look invisible. Mm -hmm. It makes them look like it's just a conversation. Even the conversation with his mom at the rehab facility, that apology scene is so beautiful because it feels sincere. And it feels sincere because... Sometimes the adults in our lives who have done harm to us as children want us to perform closeness in adulthood that they did not earn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they sometimes want to cross a bridge that they did not build. Right. And what I liked about her apology was it was an acknowledgement of like, I failed in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I can acknowledge that. And however you need to show up. In this dynamic, that is how you show up. But I acknowledge who I was and who I was not. To be. Yeah. And I think, too, what's so moving about it is, especially that it centers around the use of like crack cocaine in particular. Mm -hmm. When it comes to that particular hurt and grief that a lot of families experienced, a lot of black families experienced, it has become a joke. Mm -hmm. It's become laughable. You'll go to a restaurant and they'll have items on menus named crack something. And when they would just mean that mm -hmm. there's such a callousness about that tremendous amount of grief that really robs people of loved ones and loved ones of their lives. And it, it just, it also was a moment of seeing that lovingly portrayed as opposed to just mm. dismissed as a joke. It, it's it, the crack epidemic touched my own family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there are not a lot of media portrayals 
of that type of experience that depict anybody as as human. Mm -hmm. And that is part to me of the point I was making earlier about when we say there are some stories that are not worth telling because they're not the respectable stories. I think the issue is the inability to see people's humanity. But I think if we are committed and successful at depicting people's humanity, you can tell that from any vantage point. Hmm. Yes, we need other images of especially marginalized folks and the ones we've seen over and over again. But it didn't feel like a movie that was about like someone with a crack addiction growing up in poverty. It felt like it was a movie about people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was just the setting in place. The, the movie wasn't looking around at the people in Evanston. Right. That movie was not looking around in the theater at the people in Evanston. The movie was mm-hmm. specific and focused and sort of that Toni Morrison way of like, I'm not actually like, if you like it, that's great. But the specific can be universal and I don't have to explain over your shoulder. Mm. This reminds me of my favorite moment in Don't Worry Darling, where like you can really feel the like little rewrites getting jammed in apparently at the last second. So like (laughs) spoilers for Don't Worry Darling. (laughs) Florence Pugh is having like a standoff with Olivia Wilde. The shit's going down. And then she's like backing out the door and she's like, wait a minute, why are you in the simulation? And Olivia Wilde's like, because my kids are alive here. And it's like, okay, great. Got it. Bye. And it's like, you couldn't have put that in. You had to like have them verbally clear it up. Like at that very moment, the last time they saw each other, there was no subtler way to imply this. And again, yeah, and I guess that kind of thing feels so written with the attitude of like, if we don't try and clear up this plot hole, people will bother us about it on the Internet. And it's like people are going to bother you on the Internet about everything. So you can't base <laughs> your choices on that. Thinking about the the timeline of depictions of Black people in American cinema and thinking about like where not, not not just cinema, but like on screen going through a process where it's like, you know, like Cosby show. It's like so far, the only black folks that we've seen on television are a particular way. We're going to show them this other way, which is like an inversion of how things have been shown. And then like in the sort of like the early movies of like the 90s, where it's like, let's show a young kid who gets into who gets into the game in one way or another. And like he goes from being like very good to being very bad. And like that's kind of like what the process is. And it's like feels like very blunt while important. It's not to say that like these depictions weren't important, but it felt like very blunt. And then we work towards this place now. And it's not shocking to me to know that this movie was written by a playwright because of the nuance that we get in the characters through these conversations. It's these small inversions. It's not like these macro inversions where it's like, let's make a drug dealer who's good, actually. Like, it's like, let's make a complicated person who part of their life is being in this thing where we can certainly apply a value statement with regard to what it does to a community, but we're not blaming necessarily him for making that choice. We're not like all of the decisions that are made have some shadow decision within them to like create a well-rounded person in a way where I feel like that is the thing that feels shocking about a movie like this is like, it feels shocking when you say out loud to know that like, it is only a five or six year old phenomenon where there's a movie that exists where these nuances can exist within black characters. Yeah. And I think for me, part of why that is so particularly resonant is beyond film and media. Growing up, I felt it was a lot of my responsibility, at least 
through some of familiar social pressure that I was experiencing to feel as though my own life was supposed to be an antithesis of what are the worst things that people believe about Black people. And it was only as I approached adulthood that I realized that living your life as a rebuttal is not a life either. Oh, so good. If your life is preoccupied with constructing yourself as the opposite of whatever white supremacy says about you, it still makes white supremacy the center of your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It still makes it the place where you place the most value because what that society, what those people think about you means more than what you mean to yourself. Mm. And a lot of my unlearning of respectability politics and my learning about unmasking go hand in hand. Mm. That a lot of the masking I was doing was around making certain people in certain environments comfortable. And that was compounded. And similarly, that was also an unsafe decision. It's one of the things I've confronted about even in my relationship with my own brother, talking about the different ways that we responded to the, our environment around us. And he chose to seek validation in places where it might not have been safe to do so. But so was I. I was just being applauded as I did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People were just clapping along the way as I overextended myself, worked until I had health issues. Like so much of what has been like a life learning lesson for me is knowing that the things I was rewarded for were not good for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because speaking to all of this, like the idea of depicting people struggling with drug addiction, like that is like depicting them as bad, like kind of continuing to believe that means that you're still supporting this binary of like, there's bad behavior that you engage in, you know, for whatever reason, bad addictions, bad things you do to compensate. And then there's good, healthy things you do to compensate, like work until you're on the verge of having a stroke. Right. <laughs> right. Like seek, seek applause every moment of the day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Addiction is so bad. Don't mind me. I'm going to go to Amazon and buy a bunch of things to make me feel better about myself. Sure. Like, <laughs> yeah. Everything will calm down when I get the refrigerator organized. <laughs> I do truly believe that. But I mean, yeah, especially the addiction to work and this idea of like, I don't know, like I was, I was talking to somebody the other day about this idea of like, cause we're both kind of peak millennials born in the late eighties. And we're like, does anybody already not have an eating disorder? Honestly, like, was it possible to like grow up in that culture, especially identifying as a woman and like you couldn't not learn it. And I was like, yeah, I feel like the message that I really feel like I got was like, obviously have an eating disorder because we'll call you unhealthy if you don't, but just like, don't have a really big one. Like just have an eating disorder, but don't go to the hospital. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, there's so much to that. And so much is like, how do we talk about the body? How do we depict the body? How do we shame the body? But also I think, you know, there's a definite link between eating disorders, especially like intense anorexia and growing up in a culture of overachievement and this world of like what feels good is dangerous and bad and what feels painful is like good and everyone loves it. So the solution is to be in 
the most pain possible at any given moment. That is on the money. That is on the money because a lot of the bullying I received was also about being a fat kid. And I was talking to a friend the other day about like trying to develop a healthier relationship with my body and judgment and shame and Mm -hmm. all of these sorts of things. And we're talking about how, oh, I learned to like listen to my body um, when it comes to food. And and I said, for me, I think that is always going to be a struggle because I was a child who dieted. Mm -hmm. And so my very relationship to my body is fractured Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. there are times when I experience hunger or feeling of hunger and I feel noble about it. Yeah. I still do that. And I'm like, this is really bad. Yeah. But I'm doing it. Yeah. And like, especially when times are tough, you're just like, I don't know. I don't know about you, but it feels like when there's other stressors, like the old brain patterns are like, no, this has to be true. This was true for forever. Yeah. And I think so much of how you can relate to yourself, especially when you're masking and shrinking yourself is discomfort, but kind of becomes the norm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Almost every frontier of healing I've had in my entire life has been learning that like my discomfort matters enough to do something about. Yeah. There were some things I just thought the cost of doing this thing was to just be profoundly uncomfortable, that that was what it was like to just be a person. And it isn't until you like have a conversation with someone where they're like, you, you do realize it doesn't have to be that way. You know, you're having that experience where you're, you think you're telling a fun story about your upbringing. Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then the room gets quiet. And you're like, oh, no, was that trauma? Oh, oh, shit. <laughs> and you're like, no, when we tell it, it's a funny story. In our family, it's in the funny story category. <laughs> yeah. No, we laugh when we say it. I promise that's OK. I, I'm just not saying it right. <laughs> it, it, so <laughs> a lot of what. I relate to in Chiron is this feeling, this kind of acceptance that I'm just, I'm to always be in a state of discomfort. Yeah. Right. So to see him at the end, in spite of everything, in spite of everything, still be able to get to expressing how he feels about this person he like loves and cares for. Like there are people who find themselves disappointed with the ending because Hmm. like, oh, there should have been more. It should have been more climactic. Some people think that it should have been like more uh, sexual than it was, that it felt platonic. Mm. But I just the feeling of like when you're seen so fully Mm -hmm. that there's nothing you have to do or pretend or be or perform. I want to live in that feeling. I want to know that feeling intimately. Yeah. I don't know any of those criticisms or feelings of disappointment that people had because that scene, when you consider that you have just spent an hour and 39 minutes watching this kid either run or hunch or be pent up or beating someone up or getting beaten up or whatever, like he's always in some state of discomfort the entire movie. Yeah. And then you see for... 17 or 18 seconds that feel like a very long, satisfying time that he is finally still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's he finds that in this moment like that to me, the contrast is is wild. It's incredible. It, it's not out of place, but it's as wild as like 
they you know did something sort of like outwardly monumental like he finally is able to rest he's finally able to feel satiated to be embraced yeah. mm-hmm. and we have not seen that even in his relationships with these parent figures we haven't seen him be embraced yeah yeah so i i think that, that that's incredibly beautiful the film is an incredible and, and beautiful illustration of what you can do with quiet right Speaking of, if I can give a quick rant about my one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. So Andre Holland, who plays adult Kevin, when he recognizes that it's Chiron in the diner, (laughs) the expression on his face. They talk about the fact that, like, you know, a picture conveys a thousand words. This was Mm -hmm. a series of novels that one (laughs) expression, this one expression where he is afraid embarrassed aroused (laughs) excited shameful Mm -hmm. all this entire history that exists between these characters is just legible on his face and this profound way where him saying nothing is one of the best performances i've ever seen in my entire life Mm -hmm. that that look that expression is like so it just pulls at my heart so much and in reality, he's looking at a camera. It's one of those films where the performances are incredible and could be analyzed and dissected the ways that we do other like kind of Oscar baity films. But it's not about that. It's about all of that being in service of telling a story. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons why I still hold a little bit of a grudge about the Oscars, because when you see a film that thoughtful. Right. That's the award speech I want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's the award speech I want to hear. Mm-hmm. This conversation reminds me a lot of our conversation about the Age of Innocence <laughs> with Princess Weeks, mm-hmm. which was also about like, if you kind of immerse the audience in this world of quiet and of people not saying how they feel and not having sex, then like, the power of like a single touch or a single direct statement about emotion is like to me that, you know, I can I can see wanting more from that ending if you want it to be like unambiguously like, yes, they're together sexually again. I didn't have that note, but that does make sense to me. But it felt incredibly climactic to me, like it felt giant to have that actually happen. I think I don't know. Yeah, it just felt huge. And, and it also like took me by surprise. I was like, we have got 90 seconds left in this thing. Like, how is this going (laughs) to end? And then it was the most, um, yeah, I guess the most meaningful ending that could possibly have happened, I felt like. The acting he does, everything he's saying has something else happening behind it. Everything. Mm -hmm. And he's able to maintain... A joyful face, a surprised face, but like he's going to be subdued because you got to be cool about being as excited as you are and also perplexed about like truly beautiful. I mean, that performance was incredible. Everyone's performance was beautiful, but that that performance in particular stood out to me. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All of that weight behind that performance. It's just it's one of those things as a writer when you see performances like that, it's got to be humbling Mm. because you think you've done something on the page. You think you've like put some words down, but what people can bring when their instrument is their body. is just really something Mm. incredible. It, it, 
learning, even learning about it has transformed my life. The young man who asks, who tells Kevin to beat up Tyrone, did you guys know that guy in high school? Because I knew like three of that guy and all of them are dead, unfortunately. Like it was just from the get, you like it just was not sustainable, but they were just filled with a rage that they had no idea what to do with outside of just like, just the way he walks around looking for someone to beat up. Like you can just see that there's like stuff going on inside of him. Mm-hmm. Did you know this kid? Cause I knew a lot of this kid and it was, uh, it, then I wanted nothing to do sometimes than to break a chair on their back. And now looking back on them, I'm like, what a tragic fucking situation. Cause they were set yeah. up for failure throughout. Mm-hmm. I think I knew kids like that. And I think even at the time, I recognized that they were hurt and there were times where I was like, can't we just be two sad kids together? Like, like, (laughs) we're both lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm quietly writing my poems in the corner and and you're over there writing your raps. We're both writing poetry. Like let's, let's meet and talk about our feel. Like I, I, I felt that, but I also think sadly, I think I've worked for a lot of people like that. Yeah. I think behaving that way was a social capital for him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are ways where people who are detached from their humanity allows them to succeed in other arenas. Yeah. Honestly, the thing that has gotten me the most trouble at jobs was being a human. (laughs) (laughs) The things that got me like most in trouble was when like being a person got in the way of being like a part of a machine. I think I've, I knew kids like him for sure. And I think he also has a story, but I think more often than not, I've, I've worked for people like that. Yeah. Two things I'm fascinated by, is it called soft quitting or whatever? The thing where it's like, Oh, quiet quitting, quiet quitting, where the premise is that you like, actually do what's literally asked of you, but not like 40 other things. <laughs> and this is considered like, like, I don't think this is true. I think that the economy is collapsing for a lot of other reasons, to be clear. But this is like this hysterical New York Times article thing now of like, everyone's soft quitting or quiet quitting. I can't remember anything. They're doing the thing. And it's terrible because we all know that when you have a job, you're like, it's perfectly normal to be expected to be first in, last out and to be constantly like monitoring, like, if you know you're working hard, that doesn't matter if other people can't see you working right. hard and how like we're just so attached to that culture that any threat to it feels like dangerous, which is very interesting. And I think can't we just be two sad kids together is like the essence of all human conflict. You know? <laughs> yeah. The Normans conquer the Saxons. <laughs> can't they just be two sad kids together? No, apparently not. There's only room for one sad kid. (laughs) And that's why we have both cow and beef in the English language. (laughs) Honestly, I, I could have a million conversations, a million different ways with a billion lenses about this movie in part because it does invite so many interpretations Yeah, Mm -hmm. because it gets to be so observational, almost voyeuristic. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the magic tricks of a well-made thing is when everything is in place where the world feels fully realized, the people feel real, you get to see yourself 
in this really profound way. And even if an experience isn't directly linear or parallel to ours, we still see ourselves when we see other people. And that sense of connection, that desire to be honest, really resonates with me and and tying it back Mm -hmm. together to what I was saying about my relationship to being an autistic person is the thing that I desire most is actual connection with people. Mm-hmm. The thing is the thing I say where I'm like, y'all, we're talking stardust. <laughs> we're, the, we're the universe's ability to contemplate its own existence. Totally. Sure, we can talk about the weather. Great. But if I get a chance to get a hold of you, I want to talk about what gets you out of bed. I want to talk about like mm-hmm. what matters to you. I want to know from one stardust to another. I want to know <laughs> like what matters to you and to be connected in that way and to feel less ashamed for wanting that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And valuing that. Right. Can I ask you, Ryan, what and maybe this is this is not a conscious thing for you, but. I find that your your work, not on TV, because that's more of an ensemble situation, but like I find that your work as a person who makes things, who makes video online that make me both laugh and think, does that every time. I, I see I, you, did a, you did something about joking, uh, about being very serious about the New York Times editorial room with regard to sort of how trans issues are engaged horribly in that space. And you did something and brought my attention to things that I already knew, but you helped me see and feel it in a different way. And you do that across the board with sort of a a lot of the stuff that you do, a lot of your work in that way. And I'm curious about like how much of you doing that is consciously being like, here is a way that I can connect to other people, be seen by other people, get connected with in a way that I don't normally do. Or is that just that pursuit is in you and just manifests every time you make a thing? I think it's both. I think a lot of what I have experienced is like I I was a kid who was called really sensitive. Mm -hmm. I think that's another reason why I resonate with Chiron is that he's a very sensitive kid. And some of what I've learned even about like the toughest guys you see, a lot of folks who are incarcerated, people who've had, they're some of the most sensitive people, Mm -hmm. deeply sensitive people. They were um, talking to my brother Prisons are full of of some of the most sensitive people you ever meet. Mm -hmm. And my feelings have always felt big (laughs) to me, (laughs) sometimes too big, at least because that was what I was told. And so I felt a lot of pressure to push them down. And I think they bubble up so much like I can't help. And so now I feel like I'm in a career path where I'm in line with them. But they're often so big to me that sometimes they are disorienting in real life. And making things is how I sometimes make sense of them Hmm. to myself, and it has a connection. And I feel like when I do that thing well, as an artist and as a person, I feel like one of my purposes in life is to remind people that they feel things too. Hmm. Mm. What you learn being the sensitive kid is that everybody's sensitive. Hmm. It's just some of us are pretending as though we're not. Mm -hmm. The number of times I have had some man, usually a straight man, yell at the top of his lungs about how rational he was to be, being like, you're in the middle of heightened emotion. We're all emotional. Like, we're all deeply emotional people. And so for me, 
making art, making videos is about honoring big feelings, which I have spent a lot of my life self-conscious about Mm -hmm. and like I was wrong for. Sorry, I'm getting a little, I'm getting emotional, but see, I'm getting emotional now, but it's art making has been a tool for me to know that those feelings are sacred Hmm. Mm. and that it is a sacred thing to do to remind people that they also feel. Mm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That connects for me with the idea that like, if in life, you know, you can easily spend a lot, if not most of your time kind of needing to sort of figure out how to keep people from fucking with you or recovering from that and like keeping the tender parts of yourself safe. And it feels like art is a place where you can put them where it will remain safe. It does. And that's what it has been for me. And that's part of Mm -hmm. what I hope to continue to protect because once your art becomes your career, all of a sudden it's subject to all the bullies that want to beat you up. (laughs) So how do you, how do you protect the place that has always been safe to you Mm. when it is now your career. Right. And also when Instagram makes everyone do reels now. (laughs) Yeah. And and I think one of the reasons why I love Moonlight is because it showed me it's possible. It's possible to protect it. Mm. It's possible Mm -hmm. to have something that you care about and that could make it all the way to the Oscar stage. And I don't mean that in terms of like the award is the validation, but can go mm-hmm. all the way through the machine with its integrity intact. That's what inspires me about that film. Yes. Yeah. And it always feels like something miraculous has occurred whenever that happens. Cause it feels so rare to have a movie that isn't altered deeply by somebody being like, we're trying to sell more children's apparel merchandise in Latin America. So you need to think about that in your script. (laughs) So we know that I believe there's no father in this movie. There one plays a father figure, Mm -hmm. but we don't have a father in this movie who, in your view, is the daddy, this feels like this joke question we ask about all of, about like 10 things I hate about you feels very appropriate in those situations. And here it feels very strange. <laughs> but who is the daddy of uh, Moonlight? Almost said Twilight, glad I didn't. <laughs> Who's the daddy of Moonlight, Sarah Marshall? I mean, I'm just going to have a joke answer that I sort of mean and highlights one of my favorite scenes, which is Dawn Dish Soap. You can use it to clean little baby birds and also your own body. Yes. I have absolutely been that kid making a Don Dish Soap bubble bath in my life. And I was so happy. That whole scene yeah. where he makes himself a bubble bath and heats up the water, which is terrifying because you see this little boy mm-hmm. walking with a boiling pot of water. What could go wrong? Oh, my God. I love that scene so much. It's so beautiful. It is. Yeah. It is so beautiful. I'm going to go because I feel like, Ryan, I don't mean to put too much pressure on you, but I feel like you're the right person to land land us here with your love for this film. I love Kevin and the performance of Kevin so much in the third act. 
I just like I could look at his face and watch him act via just the face acting, which is a huge favorite of mine, as anyone who listens to the show knows. His face acting is incredible and beautiful and his trying to be cool and enthusiastic at the same time is a place I often am in my life. And just how he went about that scene, I found extraordinarily resonant, like be cool, be enthusiastic, pretend what's happening isn't actually happening. Uh, let's see where this goes. I really, I found that tremendous. Mm-hmm. I don't think it comes as a surprise, but Juan, hmm. ju- just because I think Juan may actually be one of my favorite characters I've ever seen on film. Yeah. The love and gentleness mm-hmm. that he displays to Chiron and that he doesn't expect... Chiron to meet him at an adult's place, he meets him at where he is. Mm -hmm. And I just find that like so it it moves me to tears every time I think about it. And my other answer is Teresa. (laughs) But it's Teresa who knows you don't have to talk until you're good and ready. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You don't want to go home. You can stay here tonight. And it's this deep like love and care that is just so beautiful. And I Even outside of the question of like representation on film of like black folks, I think there are very few movies of any genre of any makeup that I have seen depict loving as deeply and honestly Mm. as this film does. Mm. I'm getting I'm getting like this is a movie I have big feelings about. I'm getting emotional talking about that. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. Well, and, and to me, what one of the things that stand out is that kind of dignity given to a child. Yeah. Yeah. Which I feel so absent both in daily life for the most part and in storytelling as well, where kids, you know, kids function in movies as like stakes for the most part, or they tell yeah. little jokes. And this idea of a movie that both cares so much about the interiority of a child and then also has characters who have that same degree of care and genuine curiosity and respect. Yeah. That's very powerful. And that you move through your life. A lot of us still is that child version of yourself. Right. Ryan, thank you for bringing this to us. And just thank you for sharing your love for this lovely movie with us. Thank you for being Ryan Ken, the world's only. Yeah, it's the best. (laughs) Totally. Thank you all for having me. And Letting me have all of the big feelings oh. that I clearly am having. <laughs> we're grateful. We, I feel like, yeah, you brought your big stew pot of feelings over to our kitchen and we were like, we have a huge stove for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Ryan, for joining us. Thanks for making the episode special as you always do whenever you come on this show. We are grateful for you. Thanks to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for editing and producing the episode. Again, we put out new bonus episodes each month. You can find our bonus about Megan and the menu very soon here this January. Next week, we will be talking about The Devil Wears Prada with our great friend Eve Lindley. Eve is also going to be on a bonus episode of You're Wrong About Discussing 
the public perception of Anne Hathaway. So I feel like uh, that'll be a delightful pairing. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram, both at YouAreGoodPod. And uh, I think that's it. I think that's all you need from me. You, my friend, are good. Thanks for being here. <laughs>